Um, hey, good morning. My name's Ross. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel. And uh, if you're visiting with us today, we're so glad you're here. I, I say all the time to visitors, I don't think you're here by accident in any way. So I trust that you'll intersect with just what the Lord has for you. And um, if you're seated on that side of the aisle or the closest one on that side, would you grab that black notebook and we'll pass them down. If you're visiting, it's a great place to let us know you're here. Um, we'd love to send you a note and say, thanks, I promise we won't stalk you. And then at the, um, at the back, if you, if you didn't check in at the Welcome Center, we've got a gift for you there. We've got some coffee from, from the foundry there. Um, would love for you to take that home, a way of saying thanks uh, for being here. Um, and for everybody else, it, it, we, it's always a place, the Black Book's a place to let us know how we can pray for you and pray with you. We do that every week as elders and as pastors, and we, we, it's a great privilege that we have to enter into that um, with you. And so you can uh, let us know that there. Um, if you didn't pick up a bulletin on the way in, would you grab one on the way out? There are some things in there uh, that are um, good, important next step informations uh, that, that I don't want you to miss. Some uh, a new classes starting next week um, and some other things that I can't remember right now. But, but I'm going to have a bulletin, all right? So I'll know them, and I want you to know them. Like if you've got little kids, there's like a pajama day coming up, you know, and you don't want to miss that. If you're the parent that your kid didn't get to wear pajamas that day, you know, like, woe to you. All right, enough of that. All right, so uh, see, Romans chapter 12. You got your Bibles? Go to Romans 12 in your device or your Bibles. Um, I'll have it on the screen. Um, but I, I want you to, to see. So, Paul, we've been walking through Romans, and, and last week we looked at Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul began, so the first 11 chapters of Romans is um, Paul telling us from a theological standpoint all the things that God has done. And now what he's doing is he's going to talk to us about how do we respond to what it is that God's done. And so last week we looked and he said, hey, listen, present yourselves to God. It's kind of a consecration. Come to God and go, okay, based on everything that you've done um, and I've received, I mean, I've received that grace. Your life is mine. And then what happens is as, you, as you've given your life, so to speak, to God, which really your life is already his. It's, you're acknowledging it. Then what you experience is your, your mind begins to, begins to be renewed as you are in God's Word and are led by God's Spirit and a part of the body of Christ, and, and, you're, and you're transformed. This metamorphosis happens. You are increasingly, as a believer, becoming more of who you already are. You are growing into the likeness of who you already are. You're looking more and more as you're being transformed like Christ, whom you are in, and he is in you. And so, so this is happening, and, and Paul says, man, this is, this is great. I mean, all this mercy that God's poured out, um, now give yourself to God and be transformed. And so now what he's going to do is he's going to start um, spelling out for us, showing us, what, so what does it look like when, we, when transformation begins to happen? In the first place he starts, he, so we're going to look at verses 3 through 8. And in verse 3, he's going to say, it starts here. It starts with how we view ourselves. 
sort of our worldview of ourselves. Then he's going to say, hey, it's really the, the, what's going on is we want to view ourselves rightly so we can see the body of Christ rightly. Because nothing that's going to happen of significance in our life is going to happen apart from the body of Christ. And then he's going to tell us about the gifts, give us a sampling of this grace that God has poured out through his spirit into us. I would say, kind of begin this way in saying that we have this great need for significance. We all do. But by virtue of how we were created in the image of God, we feel a need for significance. We feel a need for, for our life to, to mean something, to have an impact. And, and, and the reality is that we struggle because while the echoes of who we are as the image of God long for this significance, long for this impact, most end up feeling a great vacuum in our soul that we can't find anything in the world that'll fill. I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, Robert Oppenheimer, the, you know, the great physicist of the last century and director of Los Alamos, one of the inventors of the atomic bomb, ended up going to Princeton later as a director of the Institute of Advanced Studies, and he won award after award after award. And in 1966, towards the kind of end of the, of the height of his career, he wrote these words. He said, I am a complete failure. And when he was asked about it, he, he said this. He said, because all of those things leave on my tongue only the taste of ashes. You can go 200 years before Oppenheimer to a man that held more important public offices than anybody in the history of the United States. He was president, senator, congressman, foreign minister, various other important capacities. John Quincy Adams at the age of 70 wrote, my whole life has been a succession of disappointments. I can scarcely recollect a single instance of success in anything that I've undertaken. And so, what are we to do with these two guys? Are we to say, hey, listen, well, they're just out of touch with the significance of their accomplishments, or they're overly pessimistic, or, or do we say, you know what, maybe they very much were in touch with the depths of the longing of their soul in a way that most men and women aren't really willing to face. You know, the writer of Ecclesiastes tells us that eternity has been set in our hearts, and then the writer of Ecclesiastes goes on to, to prove that, listen, vocation and money or possessions or a lifestyle or, or, or uh, some kind of earthly importance, none of those things will satisfy because none of those things last. And when we're honest, at the end of the day, most of us, we don't feel very significant. You don't feel like your life's had an impact, or if you do, it doesn't last very long because you know it's going to be spoiled or stained with your own pride or arrogance. You know, or everybody's going to figure out that, you know, you, you've been an imposter all along. They're going to figure out who you really are. We compare ourselves. We compete against each other. We're jealous of one another. We're angry with one another. And so many people just were groping through life trying to feel esteemed and worthy and important. And it takes on many different forms. You know, Scripture is going to address this. Paul is going to address this in this passage this morning. 
What, what Scripture says is that our significance comes directly from our gaze upon Christ, not the estimation we have of ourselves. That who we are, our value, our significance is directly related to our gaze upon Christ, not our gaze in the mirror. And Scripture is going to say so clearly this morning, we are not in competition with one another. Yet, we absolutely rely upon each other. One writer said, the sense of significance that genuinely fills the soul, that the depth of satisfaction that does not disappoint is never experienced by chasing after it. It is fully tasted only as the byproduct of a greater chase, that of seeking all of God's works dispensed through us. Here's the, here's the goal of our Christian life, and it's when these four things are synced up, and that is to do the will of God through the gift of God, but by the Spirit of God to the glory of God. To do the will of God through the gifts of God by the Spirit of God to the glory of God. And when that happens, when we, when we find ourselves in sync with that, we, I'm telling you, that joy that Jesus talks about in John 10, 10, that, that the thief, he comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. You, you begin to know, you begin to taste, you, you begin to see life to the full. See, that's the goal of life. That's what we're seeking. That's where significance is found. So look with me. I'm going I'm to read Romans 12, beginning in verse 3. And I'm going to read to verse 8, and then we'll talk about it. I'll try to put all this together for you. Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself or herself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. That's the Word of God for the people of God this morning. You know, in verse 3, if you'll go back there, what Paul does is he, he starts with this, you know, evaluation of ourselves. So how, do we, how do we view ourselves? Once we've consecrated ourselves and we know we're tasting being transformed by the renewing of our mind, what's the first thing we're to do? And the first thing we're to do is we're to take a right estimation of ourselves. 
that this transformation begins with how we view ourselves. This renewal of mind in verse 2 works itself out in verse 3 when he says to think. Now, he says to think three times. We don't, you miss it in the in the English text, but he starts it and he says, we're not to think more highly than we ought to think, but think with then, he says, sober judgment. And sober judgment, this is, a, this is the same word. Essentially, he's using a word play. He's saying, listen, we, we shouldn't think in a way that we um, are too high in our thoughts about ourselves. Rather, we should have a sober or healthy or healed perspective. What he's talking about is our worldview aimed at ourselves, the lenses by which we see ourselves. To think more highly means to be prideful or to have an inflated view. Looking down from above, C.S. Lewis said, a proud man's always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that's above you. See, we're to see ourselves as God sees us instead of seeing ourselves as compared to others. That thinking rightly, so that if we think rightly, we would pride and arrogance get drained from our life, and thinking rightly fills us with this humility. And humility is not thinking less uh, of yourself, it is just thinking about yourself less. And humility exists only in the presence of of God. And thinking rightly prepares you. As you think rightly about yourself, you're able now to see those around you with the right view. You're able to see those around you and value them and honor them. You know, rather than than being someone that we compete with or we compare ourselves to, we can now esteem those around us. C.S. Lewis says this thing, he goes on and he says, to, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day prove to be a creature which, if you saw now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. What he means is if we could catch the glimpse of the glorified person seated on our aisle or in front of us or or behind us, if we could see them in their glorified state as they've taken hold of the beauty of Christ face to face, we'd be tempted. We'd be tempted to fall down and, and worship. See, when we see ourselves rightly, we can begin to see those around us rightly. We can begin to see, hey, listen, my life is not apart from you. My life is interwoven with you. I'm not in competition with you. I'm not comparing myself with you. I esteem you and honor you and desire and look for and feel the urges by the Holy Spirit to seek to build you up because that's what I was created for. He says each uh, according to the measure of faith that God's assigned. We can think rightly with a sound mind because of the standard by which we now measure. We do not measure the things we do by our own standards. We measure everything in our life by the standard of Jesus. It is not the greatness 
of something that we have done. It is the measure, the standard by which it is measured, and that is Jesus. Anything we measure in our life and we conclude that we somehow were the source of what's being measured, we can be certain that is going to burn up. So it doesn't matter how impressive something looks, if it was in your own strength, it's going on the flame and everything that goes on the flame becomes ash. And Paul wants us to get this right, to see clearly, because he wants us to see how it is we're to relate with one another. And we can't do that if we haven't been drained from the pride that so naturally comes to us. So look at what he says in verse 4. So having done that, now he says this, for as in one body, and he's talking to the local church here, by the way. He's talking to Bethel Bible Church. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one in Christ and individually members of one another. So Paul's using this analogy of the body. He uses it several times. It's one of his favorites. It's not his only one. He uses a field. He uses a building. He uses a temple. But in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, Peter uses it. He talks about the, the body. And he says, we're one body. We have many members. We're one and we're, and we're many. And to be one and at the same time to be many means there has to be unity. We come together. We get along. He tells us we're unique individually, members one of another. One, many, unique, dependent, interdependent. What Paul is saying, listen, this is going to feel radical to you. But what Paul is saying, he said, listen, I cannot fully know myself as God has created me and gifted me apart from the body of Christ, apart from my role in the body of Christ. That our true individuality, our true uniqueness, our true diversity is found, it's discovered, it's experienced in relationship to the body of Christ. So self-esteem and independence, this is not the goal of the Christian life. Rather, in, in, in all the ways that God has uniquely put you together, being fit into the unity of the body of Christ for the glory of God. That's who you are. The significance you're longing for has a context, and it's the body of Christ. And Paul's saying, Look, I'm a part of you, and you're, you're a part of me. Who am I? I'm part of you. That's who I am. That's what Paul's saying. What hands and feet and ears and eyes do, they serve. And that's why we have gifts. So how do you know who you are? How do you know who you truly are? Paul's going to say in, it's by living in relationship with others and by serving and being served in the body of Christ. Loving other people while you rely upon Christ and you will discover who you are. what he says in verse 6. Having gifts 
that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. And he's going to list seven gifts. I'll go over those seven gifts in a minute. But notice here the gifts or the, or the grace. They're the same word, grace and gifts. This is the same word, charisma. It's not, he's not talking about, hey, the, the grace given to the church leaders. to do the ministry that you show up for. That's not what he's saying. It's, it's, it's the grace, it's, it's, it's the gifts to all believers because we're not being conformed here to the church leaders. We're being conformed to Christ and we're given gifts. We're gifted for the purpose of the body, not for ourselves. And we're talking about this harmony that is afforded and is operated by this diversity of each of our gifts. The difference of the gifts does not determine the value of the gifts. The difference of value is determined only by the individual's use of it in the body. Let us use them. That's what they're for. Who has gifts? Who has God decided to give gifts to? Well, the overwhelming response of the Old Testament is that if you're a believer, you have been gifted. You have been given a spiritual gift. The Holy Spirit has done this. Not only has the Holy Spirit um, uh, indwelt you at your salvation, not only has the Holy Spirit, has He sealed you, not only has the Holy Spirit baptized you into the death and resurrection of Jesus, but the Holy Spirit has deposited a portion of the very grace of God in you. Ephesians 4, 7, grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. 1 Peter 4, 10, as each has received a gift. 1 Corinthians 12, 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Here Paul says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. The gifts measured out, measured out grace from Christ. And if the gifts are the measure of Christ's grace, then the people, the believers, are the means. The implications are enormous. This is what it means. There's no accidents here. There's no one in this room if you're a believer. You're not in this room without a purpose and without a calling from God through Christ, gifted by the Spirit, equipped for what He's called you to. No one in this room, if you're a believer, are you without a calling, are you without a purpose, and are you without being equipped for that? See, I think the reason so many believers are bored is because there's so much more to this life. You've been saved and, and, and gifted by Jesus. And because of that, you're never going to be satisfied with anything less than engaging what is eternal, what is going to last forever. We spend so much of our time on stuff that's going to burn up. 
We've been equipped and gifted, created new to live for, to, to be a vital participant in what is eternal. And so there's this diversity of gifts that contribute to the unity of the body. Unity of the body, when used rightly, it's different gifts, and it's all the same source. And for this unified purpose, one guy wrote, he said, two things that you can't do alone in this life. One, be married. And the other, be a Christian. Can't do those things alone. So everyone has a gift. Those gifts are different. Gifts are given for the purpose of bringing unity to the church, building up the body of the church. The gifts aren't the same. We're not called to be exactly alike. We contribute the way God's designed us and gifted us and preserving this unity and building up this body. You've been given a gift that's not for you. It's for everybody around you. And we come together and we fit together like this glorious, divine puzzle that God has crafted each piece. Here's what a gift is not. Let me say this, and then we'll talk about the seven gifts. A gift is not a, a place of service. So, so a spiritual gift is not primarily a place of service. The gift is the ability not where the ability is exercised. So here, here's what you can't say, or what you shouldn't say anyway. You, you, it's not to say, um, I don't have the gift of nursery. So that wouldn't be right. I mean, you, <clears throat> the, the truth is, whatever your gift is can be applied in a myriad of different settings and contexts. It would be more accurate for, your, for you to say, um, so I have the gift of exhortation, but I don't really like kids um, because I'm a wretch, and I, so I won't go to the nursery. I mean, not that you'd say that out loud, but we all know, right? So it's not where your, your gift can, so, so it's not particular age group or ministry. It's not an office. A spiritual gift isn't, isn't an office. It can't be confused with an office. So my gifts are not my office, which means my gifts can apply anywhere. So, so, so can yours. It, it, a gift also, be clear, it's, it's not a talent or a learned skill. I mean, what we're talking about is something supernatural given by God. It, it has come by His Spirit, it, and His Spirit empowers this gift in our life. It, it, a spiritual gift is not the same thing as a natural talent or a learned skill. Listen to J.I. Packer here for a second. This is instructive. He says, the ability to speak or act in a particular way, a performing ability, as we may call it, is what he says. It, it's a charisma. He's speaking about spiritual gift here. It's only a charisma if and as God uses it to edify. Some natural abilities or talents that God has given, He never uses in this way. While sometimes He edifies through performances or spiritual gifts that to competent judges seem substandard. But what he's saying is that what makes a gift a gift is that God uses you. Sometimes your abilities may seem substandard. A talent's not the same thing as a gift. A talent's God's way of enriching people at the level of creation. A talent's one way of God 
that God beautifies and enriches, enriches the world around us through his common grace. A talent enriches people, you might say, at the creation level, the natural level. But a talent doesn't edify someone spiritually and bring them into the body and bring the healing that comes when you bring someone under the kingship of Jesus. Meaning what God's doing through your life and, and, and as he's equipped you and, and stewarded you and granted you a portion of his grace, he means for that portion of his grace to do something supernatural in the midst of the body as it edifies or it heals or brings enlightening or encouragement. See, what's, what's so interesting? We're going we're gonna to see in all of these, except for one, and I'll see how much I'll say about the one when I get there. But when you talk about mercy and teaching and exhort, I mean, these give, it's not like this. It's not like you go, okay, well, I don't have the gift of mercy, so I don't have to show mercy to anybody. Oh, I don't have the gift of service. Whew. I don't have to serve anybody. No, here's the thing. All these gifts in one form or another are exhorted to us or commanded to us, commended to us. They're, they're what believers, all believers ought to do. There are some that have this supernatural gift, and so we need you to display your gift. We need your supernatural giftedness in this to show us how to do it, to draw us into it. And he begins with one. It's the most controversial one of the list. It's prophecy. I told the first hour, if we were down the street, it wouldn't be controversial. And then I said a whole bunch of other stuff I regretted. But we're here, all right? And so let me tell you, that, that, so let me see if I can help this. Some of the confusion is there is a role in the church of prophet that harkens back to the Old Testament when the Old Testament prophets would speak for God in the midst of the godless nation, calling them back to God's word and warning them with a future that was to come. So in the New Testament, what you have in the New Testament is so clear. The role of prophet was a foundational gift, and it, it went away after the New Testament was complete. It, it didn't pass on to the church. Now, the gift of prophecy, what, you know, sometimes we talk about foretelling, like telling the future, I don't think that is at play in the, in the gift of prophecy. There's no reason for it. What, what we have is God's Word. We do not have extra-biblical revelation from God. But we do have forth-telling. I might say it this way. It's revealed truth in a manner that convicts and builds up the hearer. It penetrates the issues in society. It confronts society with the Word of God. In fact, 1 Corinthians 14.3 defines prophecy for us as upbuilding, encouragement, consolation. And he says it's supposed to be done in proportion to our faith, which means the prophet or the, the one who has the gift of prophecy should not go beyond the insight that God has given no matter how you define it. Prophecy, there, there are a few things I'd say. One, it is not above, nor does it supersede God's Word. 
Whatever is spoken should be weighed and judged against God's word. It is not a substitute or an addition or an appendix. It is absolutely in accord with God's word. Now, let me just say this. Because I have had people that have seen me do this out in the foyer. I'm going to be sorry. That's right. We'll move on. You'll forget about this. But every now and then somebody will show up. And, and typically it's a visitor, all right? And they'll show up and I can see they got, they got prophecy eyes. You know what I mean? And they want to come speak a word of the Lord over me. And I don't know these people from Adam. And, and sometimes it just creates this uncomfortable thing. I had this lady say, I was never so uncomfortable in my whole life. I was like, what? I have been. So, but they'll say, I get this word of the Lord. I want to speak this thing over. You know, I'm like, stop. I don't want to hear it. I don't know who you are. You could be a demon for all I know. That was the uncomfortable part. <laughs> but I mean it. I don't, I don't know that person. And I don't want that on me. And in my mind, move, I, that, I don't want that. It is something that's spoken to build up the body, which means you've got to be one who's part of the many individual members of each other. And it's not telling the future of things to come. It is cutting through today with the truth of God's Word. Okay. It, it, not, it's all easier now. All right, service. It, all service also is the same word for ministry, which is the same word that deacon comes from. Carries the idea of compassionate love towards the needs and the needy in the body of Christ. And once it's everything done in compassionate love is a ministry, it's a, it's a service. But do, notice, duty, it's my duty, it's my obligation. That's not part of the language. All of this is an overflow of grace. I feel impelled. And there's a gift. There's some of you have the gift of service. We need you to, to serve in a way that we can follow. You set the standard that we're, we benefit from it in a supernatural way so it, it just is ripple effect into the body. Teaching. It's the communication of, of, of not, you facilitate learning. So sometimes it, it, it speaks to the, 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 the outcome is, is, is a changed mind. Here's what I'd say about teaching. Some of you have the gift of teaching. My prayer is that all of you would find opportunities to teach, though, whether in your home to your children or at the coffee shop, and you go, hey, listen, I, want, I, I, I don't know if I can explain this very well. Man, I was just spending time with the Lord the last couple of days, and I, I saw this thing, and I don't even know if it makes sense to you, but I want to tell you about it. And that we would be doing that with one another. My prayer is that all of us, that the overflow of what, of what God's doing, as we, as we see God more clearly and 
and know that and experience the love of Christ, the grace of Christ in our life more, that we'd share that with each other. See, the goal is not using of our gifts. The goal is the unity, the building up that the using of our gifts creates. And it takes the focus off of us. Puts the focus on the body, the building up of the body. And we don't then evaluate our gifts in light of other gifts or other people with gifts. We evaluate them in light of Christ, the, the giver. No, no, no one gift is more important than any other gift. No measure of any gift is more important than the measure of any other gift. God's designed all of it is vital. It's your, it's your calling, your, your purpose, what you're equipped for. He goes on to talk about exhortation, to aid and comfort and encourage and to come alongside. And there are believers that are especially supernaturally gifted to do this. He talks about contributing or giving. I, I love people who have the gift of giving. I mean, so I'm called to give. It's my privilege to give. I'm invited to give. I'm commanded to give. And then there are those that have the gift of giving, the gift of giving, and that spurs me on. That spurs my joy in the giving so that I don't give out of duty, but I give out of, out of joy, out of, out of, out of, out of gladness. And it's those that have the gift of giving that, that help me with that. Chuck Swindoll said this. He said, while all believers are instructed to be generous, these people look for opportunities to give, offering what they have beyond normal measure. Sometimes they're wealthy. More often, they're just people with average means who, who give of their money and time and energy and expertise in extraordinary ways. Gifted givers don't want bronze plaques, buildings named after them. There's nothing particularly wrong with either of those, but supernatural givers don't want all that attention. They prefer anonymity. They see a need and they seek to meet the need. Some of you are gifted by God to be givers. We need you for our joy. There's leadership to lead, which is also this funny word. If you look in, the, most of you have your uh, a footnote in your Bible that says also to give aid. So, you know, it's active in, in helping. It's not lording over leadership. It's kind of underneath leadership where you're supporting and giving aid and encouraging, pointing a direction. Some of you have the gift of leadership, and we need you. We need you in the nursery, and we need you in, as a greeter. And we need you to serve us by help, helping at the hospital or serving the youth. Or, we, we, need, we need all these gifts everywhere. And then mercy, the, the gift of, of mercy... It, it's this extraordinary ability to sense the need of those 
who are hurting to know what to say and how to say it and when not to say anything. I love being with somebody at the hospital or at hospice or in somebody's home and, you're, and all of a sudden you realize, oh man, I'm with somebody who has the gift of mercy. They know what to say. And I'm to show mercy and I'm to be there and, and yet in all my awkwardness, I, I'll send somebody who, who man, they, they know the pain that's going on there. They know what to say, know how to be silent, and that's instructive to me. That builds up the body. You have gifts. You're to use them. can't be who we are without him. You'll never experience who you are apart from this body of Christ. Notice the last three descriptions of those gifts. You know, um, contribute, give with generosity, lead with zeal, mercy with cheerfulness. It's not the language of duty. It's the language of overflow, of, of bounty, of of grace. It's not, it's not duty, you know, like it's my obligation or I did, you know, it's what I have to do or, you know, the least amount that I can do to get credit for. It's not that kind of language. It's an overflow of our gaze on Christ. Duty is the overflow of our gaze in the mirror. Duty is the overflow of our gaze on ourself. Here's the deal. I'm a member of you. You're a member of me, not out of duty, but out of grace. The overflow of his bounty to us. Let me wrap this up a little. Every believer is given gifts by God, and they're to be used. And I think of the way that Paul puts all this together here and puts it together in 1 Corinthians, and you see it in, in Ephesians 4 and in 1 Peter chapter 4. As you can think of it like magnets, spiritual gifts are drawn to the surface of our life by the magnetic pull of the body of Christ. The, the many are the magnets that draw to the surface the grace of God in our life. The, the, the more isolated and insulated we become from other people, the gifts that God has given us lie dormant. See, apart from the body of Christ, spiritual gifts are meaningless. God's given you desires that can only be met in the midst of the body of Christ in the local church with all its blemishes. So I hear people say, you've heard people say, I don't need to be part of the church to be a Christian. And I say, okay. But every one of those orphan Christians I've met, none of them are happy. They're all bitter. They're all mad at something. See, what the problem is, too many Christians have wintered themselves. And the fruit of their life remains dormant. 
Listen, if we're being honest about the church, we, we like our space, right? I mean, we like order. I mean, we've worked hard to, to create order in our life, and we don't want that messed up with messiness, and people are messy, and suffering's messy, and too many people have taken the road of insulating themselves. But listen, and I don't fully understand this, but Paul's going to give us a picture of it to the rest of Romans, and read 1 Corinthians, and read 2 Corinthians, and read Colossians, and The messiness is part of the beauty. The church, the local church is God's idea. The church is the bride of Christ. And listen, what God could do in the blink of an eye, what he could do with the whisper of a word, he's, he's delegated, he's, in, he's entrusted, he's stewarded to the body of Christ, imperfect and inefficient, in progress, slow, blundering. Philip Yancey tells this great story in his book called The Church, Why Bother? It's a short little book. I commend it to you if you're looking for something to read. But he tells the story of a composer, Igor Stravinsky. Igor Stravinsky, and once, he once wrote a new piece that contained a difficult violin passage. After several weeks of rehearsal, the solo violinist came to Stravinsky and said that he couldn't play it that he'd given it his best effort and found that the passage was too difficult, even unplayable. And Stravinsky replied, well, I understand that. What I'm after is the sound of someone trying to play it. Yancey says, perhaps something similar is what God had in mind with the church. Listen, Jesus gravitated to people with needs. He gravitated to suffering. The New Testament promises that in this life we'll have troubles, we'll have suffering, life will be messy, the church is messy, miscommunication happens, feelings get hurt, people get left out, people aren't easily fixed. And the great news though is that when you truly get connected and your life's intertwined with others, Suddenly you realize that the mystery of the body of Christ, the mystery of the church as an individual, one part with many members of one another, it draws out things in you you never knew were possible. The one thing about suffering, whether you're suffering or the suffering of others, it is, it's, it's like a magnet and it draws to the surface. The, the image of God that you were created in. The likeness of Jesus that the Spirit of God is transforming into you, the inner transformation of the Spirit gets drawn to the surface and the degree to which you insulate yourself from others, from their suffering, from their needs, from, from the body of Christ, you insulate from serving others and using your gifts to build up the Christ. The beauty of your new creation lies dormant. The winter of your soul never realizes the bloom spring. And all of a sudden you see, oh yeah, step in here. God, would you use me? And I dedicate myself to whatever you want me to do here, there. Pretty soon somebody will go, man, I'm so glad when you're around. I don't know what we did without you. 
And you'll enter into somebody's life and the whole time you'll be thinking, oh man, not me, not me, not me. Here, okay, here I am. And you'll see drawn out of your life in those moments things you never thought would come. If you are looking for significance in your life, the first thing I want to offer is, listen, the first thing to do is that you, you, you got to come to Christ. If you haven't considered or you, you haven't come to believe the startling claims that Jesus is the Son of God who offers you grace by dying in your place for your sins, then that's the starting place. Secondly, after coming to Christ, I I invite you to to set your gaze on him. The more Christ is in your life, the more you are. And thirdly, I invite you to give yourself away to Christ. And the tangible way to do that is in the body of Christ. Give yourself your gifts, your time, you're members of other people in this room. You're connected, interdependent. The ministry is not one person. The ministry is the body of Christ. What you're searching for can't be chased after. It comes as the byproduct of the greater chase. I'll end with one story, and then we'll get out of here. Philip Yancey tells this one also. He says this. Says I remember hearing a similar illustration from Earl Palmer, a pastor who was defending the church against critics who dismissed it for its hypocrisy, its failures, its inability to measure up to the New Testament's high standards. Palmer, a Californian, Californian at the time, deliberately chose a community known for its cultural unsophistication. When the... Uh, uh, Milpitas High School Orchestra attempts Beethoven's Ninth Cent- uh, Symphony, the result is appalling, Palmer said. I wouldn't be surprised if the performance made old Ludwig roll over in his grave despite his deafness. So you might ask, why bother? Why inflict on those poor kids the terrible burden of trying to render what the immortal Beethoven had in mind? I mean, not even the great Chicago Symphony Orchestra can attain that perfection. Well, my answer is this. Milpitz's High School Orchestra will give some people in that audience their only encounter with Beethoven's great ninth symphony. Far from perfection... It is nevertheless the only way they'll hear Beethoven's message. And imagine the joy of each member of the orchestra as they come together, individually bound together, playing a masterpiece, however imperfect. Yancey says, I remind myself of Earl Palmer's analogy whenever I start to squirm in a church service or in a small group. Although we may never achieve what the composer had in mind, there is no other way for those sounds to be heard on earth. You're invited into this. It is where you will find what you are looking for. It is where you will catch the glimpses 
of your Savior that you are being transformed into the likeness of. Join us. We need you. Do you need us?